welcome to the HJ Talks About Abuse podcast, the podcast where we talk about sexual abuse cases in the hope that it will assist listeners in openly discussing topics which have been ignored for too long. This podcast is brought to you by the abuse team at Hugh James. We are lawyers, so we tend to speak about the legal aspects of abuse cases, but we aren't too shy to speak up about the broader issues faced by survivors of sexual abuse too. We hope that you find it interesting, but more than that, if you are a survivor of sexual abuse, we hope that you find our discussion empowering. Hello, my name is Alan Collins. I'm the partner who heads up the abuse team at Hugh James. Welcome to this podcast. And I'm joined today by Mark Kavanagh, who is a director at Evident Consulting. Hi, Mark. Hi, Alan. Nice to talk to you again. Thank you very much. And thank you very much for giving us your time to join us on this podcast. Before we get underway, I have to remind everybody that these podcasts touch upon sensitive issues we're talking about sexual abuse frequently and of course we fully appreciate that that can be troubling and distressing so if you think you may be upset by this podcast now's the time to go off and do something else otherwise please stay with us so let's get underway with this podcast mark has very kindly agreed to talk to us about self-generated sexual content involving young people. So let's get underway and I'm going to ask Mark a very direct question. Why have you suggested that we talk about that in this podcast? Yeah, look, this is a really interesting part of the work that I have been doing over the last few years when we were looking at harms to young people particularly in the online environment. So when we're considering online child sexual exploitation and online child abuse, the idea of child sexual abuse materials, the the, the images and the videos that are created about child abuse intersects with this idea. And the, the terminology you use, and it's terminology that I prefer to use, is that there's a difference between child sexual abuse materials and self-generated sexual content involving children. Mm-hmm. Some of, there's some overlap between those categories, but when you know we think about child sexual abuse materials, we think about really heinous imagery, we, we, the recordings of the, the, the rapes and, and abuse yes. that, that have occurred. And, and yes. that's how the, the terminology arose. In the past, we used to use this terminology of child pornography. In the 80s and 90s, it was shared by, by people committing abuse photographing what they were doing and and sharing that, you know, printing photos, copying movies, VHS and and sharing it. But what's happened over time is that all of us now have, you know, we've got a camera in our pockets. So it's a different context for potentially creating child sexual abuse material. And some of what's happening is that children are creating content themselves and sharing it. Sometimes that's because they're tricked or they're coerced or they're blackmailed into creating the content by offenders. In other instances, it may be that they're they're perhaps willing actors in the process of creating content, you know, perhaps sharing photos with their boyfriend or girlfriend that may not go any further than that relationship or it may fall out of their control and be shared without consent or or something like this. Yeah, I think 
I it's either last year or the year before switching channels on TV. There was some um, US program. Can't even remember what it was called now, but it was mainstream US TV, and it was obviously geared, I think, towards a younger audience, probably an audience in their teens, twenties, something like that. And I can't even remember what the storyline is now. But basically, what I was surprised if not shocked by it was a college student a male probably i don't know 18 19 he's at home and he took an intimate you knew what he was doing he's taken an intimate picture of himself on his iphone which and he then sent the image to a female student in his class and then she comes over and you know two plus two makes four uh, you know they had their fun and these were attractive people educated people your typical sort of us sort of preppy white middle class sort of respectable and that mm-hmm. message was i took away from that this Same is mainstream like television this is yeah. what you do if you want to have sex with an attractive person you just send a picture of your yeah. anatomy you know there you are in bed you send a picture of your anatomy to this attractive fellow college student who then jumps on his or her bike comes over and <laughs> you know you all have fun and that was normalizing you yeah. know i don't want to be judgmental but you could think well hang on a minute what kind of <laughs> you know we know what the message is but actually, you start thinking about it, that is a really dangerous, yeah, misleading and, and, well, message which is going to be picked up by, you know, young people who are not overage and able to give fully informed consent and are sufficiently mature. That programme was probably watched by youngsters in their, you know, 13, 14, whatever. Right. I'm going to disagree with you a little bit because I, I would suggest as well there's a couple of things that are worth considering. So there's no doubt that that, that sort of thing, particularly happening in, in mainstream television, is having an impact on normalising these behaviours. Some of the research is also telling us that. So Thorn, the NGO in the US, did some really great piece of work a couple of years ago where they spoke with young people in the States about sexting, about sharing um, self-generated sexual content. And I I think the numbers are about 40% of the young people they spoke to said that this is somewhat, this is normal. Um, amongst people their age to do, right? So that's four out of 10 young people saying it's normal, not saying that they did it, but saying it's normal. Actually, Alan, just I think just yesterday, there was some research in the UK released that showed some similar numbers. I think it was around 20% of young people in their late teens, so 16 to 19 it was. It was uh, Julia Davidson and Mary Aiken, their research. And showing 20% of kids in a, a quite a large sample, a European sample of about 8,000, I think, had engaged in, in, in sexting and sharing images as well. So yes, I think it's becoming normalised. But then you've also got to consider that there's perhaps not always negative outcomes from this. So you know, we, we were locked down in a pandemic for a couple of years where young people were also continuing to grow and develop, mm-hmm. but you know, cut off from each other and forced onto technology. So maybe that's also had an impact on changing the way that young people are engaging, changing the way that sexual development 
is occurring. Now, that's not to discount the, you know, the two major ways that this can have negative influence. Certainly, you've named the idea that it normalises the behaviour and then young people are seeing this. But also, there's always a risk when you create this content of it, it going beyond what it was intended for. And, and that's actually a big part of where concerns lie. So the images initially created between a couple might not be harmful, but later on they break up and, and a disgruntled person, you know, shares stuff that was shared through a trusting relationship with people that they shouldn't, gets out of their hands and, and, and yeah. goes beyond. So I'm not saying it's okay and that's important, but I am saying that there are some elements of this issue that it, it's, it requires nuance. We need to be understanding because if we just mm. flat out say, no, this is bad, I mean, we just become redundant to young people who are saying, well, you don't yeah. understand what yeah. it's like. Yeah, I get that. It's, it's, it's about, surely it's about education around yeah. a tough subject. It's about informed consent. Do you actually know what you're doing? Yeah. And do you understand and the potential implications? And, and navigating the context around it. So we don't, we don't concentrate only on the sharing of the, the image, but like what are the circumstances in which that's being requested? And and you just named, like, has that been done consensually? And in, in, is the consent informed or is there an element of power being used with someone, for example, who has intellectual disability being tricked into sharing something because they're feeling loved by someone who is manipulating them one way or other. So the image itself is not the only part of the problem, but the context in which these, these instances of young people sharing content is really important to unpack. You're talking to us from Bangkok, from, from Thailand. How is this seen in Thailand, in Southeast Asia? In Southeast Asia, there's a, I think there's a really urgent need for this conversation. For example, I'm speaking to you from Thailand. The, the Disrupting Harm research that was released about Thailand late last year showed that it was one of the most online countries in the world for young people. You know, it was, I can't remember exactly the number. It's like more than 96% of 12 to 17-year-olds in this country are connected. So you have this huge exposure on a huge engagement with the online world and if we're not having discussions with young people about how to navigate that then we're sort of failing them so they're going to find the information and they're going to learn by trial and error and, and perhaps accept bad advice um, through those processes if, if we don't have the discussion so yeah i i, I think the nuance and, and helping young people understand some of the risks attached to what they're doing, but not telling them necessarily not to do it, but having them understand the risks. It's a yeah, a risk mitigation approach to understanding online safety. Would there be would, would there be cultural issues to contend with? Yeah, absolutely. And you know, across I mean Southeast Asia is massively diverse from country to country and even, you know, within countries. But in lots of places there's still a fairly conservative social approach to talking about sex. You know, as someone who does the work that you do and, and the work that I do, I spend a lot of time talking about sex and I think it, it's important that we, we normalise that. But the sense that as a culture, you know, I'm not part of Thai culture, I'm, I'm Australian, but I would say the same thing even applies in Australia. We're still not overly comfortable having frank and honest discussions about sex 
around and, and involving young people. So that issue in the West is, is also the case, if not more the case, in, in Southeast Asian cultures as well, to speak really generally. And, you know, yeah, sure. Um, so, mm. yeah, I, I think at Evident, we're in the process at the moment of, of trying to, fingers crossed we, we might get this off the ground, but we want to really replicate some of that research that has happened in the West, for example, that I spoke about in the UK and the US, with a Thai population. So I'm talking to a couple of donors at the moment about surveying a thousand kids across this country about the sorts of risks that they're experiencing and, and how comfortable they do feel seeking help and, and who from. Again, the Disrupting Harm research told us that young people who experience online child abuse and online risks prefer to speak to peers and trusted adults around them. They don't, they're not going to call a hotline. They're not going to go directly yeah. to the place without some sort of support. So understanding exactly in Thailand what that looks like would be really vital, I think. Uh, so, yeah, sounds very interesting because even in the UK, there's you know research that suggests that amongst young people, there will be, let's put it this way, a hesitancy about going direct yeah. to the police. Yeah, it's probably not that surprising, is it? I mean, you've spent your life working with young people and others that have had these experiences and they're really sensitive and they're really scary. And, and sometimes it takes, well, I mean, the research shows that it's many, many years often before yeah. people disclose what's happened to them. So I'm not surprised by that and, and people that work in the space are not. But but sometimes the sort of solutions put forward are a bit simplistic. It's like, oh, we'll fund more staff at the hotline to make disclosure easier. It's like, well, it's certainly helpful to have the capacity, but that's not necessarily making disclosure easier. No, exactly. Very important distinction. Okay, well, on that interesting note, we better call it a day. Thank you, Mark, as always, and good luck with the work. It sounds not just invaluable, but fascinating as well. So thank you very much. Thanks, so, Alan. A pleasure yeah. to talk, yeah. Thank you very much. It's goodbye from me, and it's goodbye from Mark. And as always, if you've got any thoughts or suggestions for future podcasts, then please do get in touch. Thank you for listening to this episode of HJ Talks About Abuse. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or your favourite podcast player. If you'd like to speak to us about something you've heard today, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at aboutabuse at hjtalks.co.uk.